Indigenous people have been resisting colonization for centuries. But what do these efforts look like today? And what are some of the most important issues facing Indian country? We could take it slowly Or we could get insane No one ever got anywhere By playing it safe This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with some scholars of Native Studies who visited Grinnell back in the fall. Sebastian Braun is the director of the American Indian Studies program at Iowa State University. We'll talk to him about the impact of the oil boom on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. Then, we talk with Gina Quezon, assistant professor of English at Georgia State University, who came to campus to talk about the story of the lost colony of Roanoke Island and what that story and its pervasive presence in history tells us about the role of Native people in this country's development. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Sebastian Braun came upon the field of American Indian studies through a series of accidents. He studied ethnology and anthropology in Switzerland, where he took a seminar on the 500th anniversary of Columbus and took an interest in Mississippian and Hopewell mounds and platform pyramids. And that's how he got hooked. He now teaches at Iowa State University as a professor of American Indian Studies and paid us a visit in Grinnell back in October to talk about the Bakken oil boom and the impact it's had on Native and non-Native communities and the environment based on his time at the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota, where he's been researching since 2011. Construction of the pipeline has moved forward despite concerns and protests over water quality and sacred burial grounds. I asked him about his first trip to Fort Berthold and how the oil boom has changed the reservation and surrounding areas. So Fort Berthold is, is of course, the, the beginning of the pipeline, right? So it, it's, the Bakken uh, is all around Fort Berthold. And so when the boom first started, you know, I mean, we were out there as, as basically as, as, as tourists, you know, we went camping out there in uh, 2000, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you know, and it was, it was just like, there was nobody around. Like it was, it was really dark at night and you could see all the stars. And, and I remember I was out there, we were out there in 2008 and um, we were camping and uh, I took the dog out of the tent, you know, a little bit up the hill to, to, to have her pee, you know. And I was looking around and I, I saw these, uh, there were two drills, two uh, well drills active. And, and, and they were kind of like UFOs, you know, because they were all lit up. And you you can see for miles, especially at night, right? And so and so, I, I was thinking like, wow, you know. And then the next time I got out was in 2011, and um, it was um, it was the first time that I truly understood, I think, what a gold uh, a gold boom uh, looked like in the in the 19th century, um, because because I think it it must have been the same. Uh, the same feeling, like um, hustle, everybody absolutely active. Um, traffic had increased uh, 10, 20 fold. The roads were collapsing under the weight of the trucks. Uh, there were accidents um, because everybody worked, you know, basically 24 hours a day and, and people fell asleep. And uh, farmers still had to get to their fields with their tractors. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were, in the middle of North Dakota, there were like, 20 mile traffic jams now 
Like when before you could drive, you would drive and you wouldn't see a car for an hour. Right. Right. Um, people moving in, of course, um, there were a lot of problems with, with just increasing population. Um, it was very disorienting for, 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 for locals uh, because uh, with, all the, with all the rigs, uh, you know, you need access roads. And so um, people couldn't navigate anymore like they used to. Right, because before that you would say, "Oh, yeah, you go down, you know, drive two miles, and you take the next right, and then remember at Tom's old garage, you stand, you turn left, you know," and that didn't that didn't work anymore, right? And so um, it's very disorienting. And as I, you know, talked with people and and went to events, and you know, what I started to to understand is that was that. Uh, Towns and and city and 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 county uh, commissioners had no way of dealing with this, and they were absolutely overwhelmed. And it was for them, it was just chaos. And so um, that was that was like how things changed. I haven't been out there for a while, I have to say. Last time I was out there, I stopped at the at the new gas station, <laughs> you know, across from the new hotel, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. Uh, and and I went in and and the guy in the gas station said, uh, "How are you?" You know, and I said, "I said fine." You know, how are you doing? And he said to me, "Oh, I'm okay. It could be worse. I could be out of a job." And I knew at that moment that the boom was over. Mm-hmm. You know, because that was the first time that anybody had even brought up the potential of being out of a job out there um, for the you know for 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 the previous. Uh, five, six years, um, uh, nobody was out of a job. And so, and so now I think activity is picking back up. Um, you know, the, it's, it's, it's not profitable to, to, to drill unless oil is over 50, $60 a barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that the oil is coming back up, um, I think people are starting to drill again. And so, um, you know, maybe activity will pick up again but uh, it's it's not going to be like like it was before, like in terms of the, this this absolute boom. Uh, I think I think it's it's going to be more more orderly by now. Uh-huh. So. Wow. Do you have a sense of of how maybe it's not going to be a lasting economic boon to the to the area, but how that economic maybe short term success has impacted the people that are actually living there and not uh, you know the oil companies yeah. that are getting yeah. the profits. Okay, so so let's. Those were two questions. <laughs> the first I one was: my is, it, is it going to be a lasting economic boom? And I, and I have to say, absolutely not. You know, um, and this the state in the beginning, the state did everything they could to to present it as such. You know that 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 the, the, these people who who moved in, they would stay there, and and so North Dakota, you know, Western North Dakota would 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 you know, for lack of a better word, would become like more civilized or, you know, like, you know, communities could build on this and so on. And, and I was always skeptical because there are reasons why not that many people live in Western North Dakota. And, 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 and those people who moved in, you know, from the outside were mostly without families. There were some who brought their families with them, you know, but once the jobs dry up in the oil fields, I mean, th- there's agriculture and, and, and that's what is Western North Dakota. Um, how did it impact people? Um, in many different ways, I think. So some people got really rich, you know, uh, overnight, basically. 
Uh, that was actually a problem because they didn't know what to do with the money. Uh, these were people who who, who never had uh, money. Uh, you know, I mean, even if you if you, even if you have a, a large farm or a large ranch, you don't have cash. <laughs> you live on on credit, right? And so, um, with that influx of money, people just didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to invest money. They didn't know how to, you know, some people. So some people um, just put all their money under the mattress. I mean, literally. Um, some people uh, just spent, you know. Um, but the other problem was that that a lot of people didn't get money because because if you had mineral rights, now you got rich. If you didn't have own mineral rights, you didn't get anything, right? Um, and so uh, I think one of the largest impacts of, 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 of the economic boom was that it ripped communities apart mm. um, because there were now poor people and rich people. And in, in many communities, especially in the first few years, the people who, who, who got wealthy didn't want to admit it. So there were people who bought a new pickup truck and, and put it in the garage. Wow. You know, and, and, and didn't drive it for two years because they didn't want to be seen as 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 the people who now had more than their neighbors with whom they went to church, with whom they shared, you know, a community and and, and they saw the potential this was rip things apart. And and so um I I think I think it instituted you know, a different dynamic into communities. Uh, economically, mm. and, and there were there were social problems, of course, you know, insider outsiders, uh, things like that, and, and and some communities have found a way, you know, to slowly now adapt to these new realities, and you know, but but um, wealth is not always positive, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of inequality. Um, so turning to a slightly different topic, although still natural resource management, but perhaps a, a more sustainable version. One of your books, Buffalo Inc., detailed how the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation has turned to bison ranching in recent years. Can you talk about how bison ranching fits into their cultural, ecological identity and and how and also their their economic prosperity? No, this is actually so this is actually a difficult subject because that that project no longer exists. Okay. All right. So um, it was uh, it was a an effort, right, to to deal with um, resources as they are available in terms of uh, living on the plains, right. So actually, the guy who who started who founded uh, the Buffalo uh, project, um, Fred Dubray, um, he. He went and 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 did a, an analysis of the resources that the reservation had, and basically what he came up with was, well, we have grass, tons of grass. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we have uh, people, a little bit fewer people. Not than grass, tons of right? people, yeah. <laughs> but we have people, right? And uh, and we have a culture, and uh, and so his goal was was on one hand to to run Buffalo as. Uh, as a economic development project, but on the other hand, as an ecological restoration project, because a lot of the a lot of the pastures were overgrazed by that time, and and third, as a cultural revitalization project, right? And, um, and you know, and all of that would be sustainable because, well, <laughs> 
buffalo eat grass. <laughs> There's a lot of grass, right? And so you didn't have to inject a lot of a lot of capital, and so that wouldn't lead to dependency on outside forces. That was that was the that was the idea, and I think it had a lot of merit. You know, uh, parts of me. And especially at that time, I was like, this is how development should be done. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go out there and study that. <laughs> right? And that was my dissertation topic. And so unfortunately, it broke apart. And it broke apart for, for you know, for different reasons. Uh, one reason was that uh, most of the people on Cheyenne River are cowboys. You know, I mean, if you think, if you talk about traditional native cultures, um, Today, for most people, that is that is cowboy culture um, out there on the plains, and so they ran cattle, and they couldn't quite understand why, you know, four thousand acres in the middle of the reservation of prime cattle uh, pasture would be would be turned over to you know to a few thousand, you know, to about twelve hundred buffalo, when they could raise cattle there, right? Um, and so um, there was a lot of uh, competition um, over over the the land and the resources, of course, uh, which led eventually to to the downfall of the Buffalo Project because it didn't turn enough profits. Right? It's a difficult subject because I had these long discussions with people. You know, where I, where I would sit, we would sit in the in the kitchen, right? and and I would I would say, you know, it's not all about money. Um, there are there are things that are much more important than money, and you should you know really you know revitalization of of the culture you know is so important, and 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 the people I was talking with would say, and they they were Lakota, right, and they would say, um, no, you don't understand. It is all this world is all about money. So yeah, culture is nice, but we need to we need to have money, you know. And so, and so it was this. Uh, I learned a lot in those conversations, mm -hmm. you know, about the realities uh, that people face, and and about how um, an idealistic view of what people should be doing might not be worth too much for them because they live in a in a, in a reality where yeah, they do need some money, mm -hmm. and so. I think I, le I learned a lot about economic development and about uh, sustainability, and, and that sustainability cannot just be ecological, but it also has to be economic, and, and about the and about you know also about the um, sacrifices we probably will have to make sooner or later if we want to be sustainable, because um, there's a level there's a level of 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 quality of life that we have built on a non-sustainable trajectory. Mm -hmm. And if we want to be sustainable, one of the things that we will have to do is we will have to give some of that up. Yeah. And I think that became very clear. What are some of the biggest issues facing Indian country right now as we talk before the midterm elections? I know there's been discussion about the voter ID laws and how they disproportionately impact Native voters. But what other issues are on Indigenous people's radars? Right now, the biggest one of the biggest issues that just came up is um, that a court in Texas overturned and declared unconstitutional the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. Whoa. And um, that is uh, unbelievably huge for Indian country uh, because the Indian Child Welfare Act 
is this is this law that was enacted to basically um, give sovereignty to tribes over their children, right? So that so that tribes have um, preference in terms of where children are placed uh, in foster care or in adoptions, mm-hmm. and and if tribes do not agree with the placement, that they can interfere with it and and basically um, you know bring these children home, right? And there have been a lot of interests, uh, national interests, who have been trying to fight the Indian Child Welfare Act for for, for maybe 20 years or so. Um, but now a federal uh, judge in, in Texas um, has has declared the law to be unconstitutional. And, and I think, uh, well, I mean, you know, people will appeal it, you know, and so on. But, but what many people fear is that this will go to the Supreme Court now. Mm-hmm. And and right now, people are not convinced that the Supreme Court of the United States will uphold will uphold the the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, and and um, that's a scary proposition. That would be very that would be devastating in terms of of of, of sovereignty for for Indian country and yeah. and for many other reasons, not just in terms of sovereignty, right? But it, you know, potentially devastating in terms of, of children's welfare, yeah. obviously, right? But um, but I think that that's on on everybody's radar right now. Yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's also been on a lot of people's yes, radar it has recently because yes. she, as some people may know, used a DNA test to prove her to prove yes in quotations uh, yes. her native ancestry, which yes. received a lot of criticism um, yes. and is part of a long history of contested ground in, in native communities about what it means to be native. Um, what was your reaction to Warren's attempt to prove her native identity and and what does it maybe reveal about the way we conceive of identity uh, in terms of Native American heritage? So to be honest, my reaction was like, eh. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, this story has been going on for a while, right? Yeah. It's been going on at least for three or four years, I think, um, since somebody unearthed that. Well, since since Elizabeth Warren came to national prominence, and somebody unearthed that that she might have claimed native uh, identity, right? When when many people dispute that. Let's, let's start with the DNA test. No, DNA does not prove your native identity. <laughs> no. Because, and there's a very simple reason for that, and it is uh, that uh, being, at least officially, uh, being American Indian or Native American is not dependent in any way or form on uh, whatever you could test with a DNA test. It is a legal category. It is not a racial category. Right, and and that is that is the case because um, basically what makes you an American Indian in the United States is that you're an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe. It has nothing to do with your culture, nothing to do with your language, nothing to do with your with your DNA, not nothing to do with anything. The only thing that matters is that you are an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe. There are some exceptions to that outside of this, where people get. Uh, the rights, you know, to to use the Indian Health uh, Service, uh, some other things like that. But but that's the basic definition. And so, whether whether Elizabeth Warren has or has not an ancestor, what is it like four four, four or five times removed potentially? Right? Um, yeah, it doesn't change anything about who she is, right? Right, and it doesn't change anything about the fact that she 
Yeah, no, she's not native. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But, <laughs> right, I mean, the, the discussion is, as you said, right, it, it's about native identity. And, and basically, this is a discussion that has been here for forever, right? Ever since, ever since people have tried to narrow down who is native and who is not native. We had had this discussion, and and so it ties into a long history of um, the question of how do we define somebody who is American Indian. I think Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump, of course, because Elizabeth Warren is trying to prove her native identity because he calls her Pocahontas, right? So there's that. You know, I think that is on a different level because it is outsiders trying to discuss who is native and who's not. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, there's, of course, also been a long history of that, right? That that in, in, in many ways, it is not necessarily, at least on a national level, up to native communities to decide who who is native and who is not. But that conversation is also... Um, has been had for a long time by by outsiders who, however, have the power to impose some of their conceptions uh, about this subject onto native communities. Mm -hmm. How how do you deal with that in your own work as someone you know? Not necessarily you are not the the arbiter of uh, who is native and who is not, but you know, as a as a scholarly voice in these issues, uh, I'm sure the issue comes up. So how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? So if somebody says I'm native, I, I don't question that. So, I mean, so if Elizabeth Warren would walk in and say, and, 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 you know, that will never happen. Right? <laughs> but She's actually the next, next guest on the show. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I'm looking forward to meeting her. Then. <laughs> so, but you know, if she, if she would say I'm native, um, I, I, you know, okay, well, you know, that's your perception of things. Then. There are lots of people who, who, who are not enrolled members of, of a federally recognized tribe who, who know for themselves that they are American Indian, right? And um, it's not, as you said, right, it's not my, my role to be the arbiter. I think who, whose role it is to be the arbiter is the communities that people claim. You know, just like somebody who says, uh, I'm Norwegian. Well, does wearing a Norwegian sweater and eating lutefisk on Sitten de Mai, you know, does that make you Norwegian? You know? Well, you find that out when you go to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> right. And right. So, and so, you know, um, I, in my own work, I'm, I'm trying to, let me put it this way. I think that my responsibility as somebody who is engaged in American studies is to people in communities. It is not to people who... Uh, who claim that they're native, whether they are or not, um, but but are not embedded in communities. That is my first responsibility to to people who live in uh, in communities. Now that can be like if somebody works in urban communities, right? That's also a community I want to. Right, but um, I think there are many people you know that we deal with in academia. Um, who who claim uh, ties to communities that they might have uh, never seen or might have seen, you know, maybe decades ago. Um, and that happens, and I'm, if I say there are many people, I, 
that happens with, with all kinds of different uh, uh, populations, uh, societies, cultures, right? Um, if you live in exile, <laughs> you know, uh, you you, dis you rediscover ties that you probably never had, right? <laughs> just to just to identify yourself, and so um, it's not like that. I reject those claims because I, I have no basis to to do that. But but my first responsibility is is to look at realities in in the communities that I work with. Makes sense. Um, can you talk about in the communities where you have been? The importance of language as a, as a part of that identity and um, efforts for language revitalization that that you've maybe been witness to or that you've kind of heard of or seen. Yeah, language is one of those issues, right? Because we just talked about identity, right? And and so in in many communities, language is a form of uh, proving your identity these days, right? So, for example, if you look at um, Lakota, it's, it's the language that I'm most familiar with. Um, in 1953, I think, the chairman of, of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe wrote this, uh, wrote this article where he, you know, this was a time of termination where the federal government tried to terminate tribes to, to, to free them from federal oversight as they, as they proposed it. Which would have also meant, and which meant for for many tribes, that the social safety net um, that the federal government provided through different uh, laws um, would would be gone. And so tribes around the country were were told that they would be terminated. And so German Duchesneau's um, uh, concern was how how could he prepare the people for a future in which the reservation would no longer be there, right? That is where they would have, where they would live in mainstream society, where they ha would have to live without anything that the reservation provided. And so he, he, he says in 1953 that at that time, over 50% of the children on Cheyenne River grew up in homes where the first language they learned in the home was Lakota. Today, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would guess if it's 5%, that's high, mm -hmm. right? And so over the past 60 years, we, we've gone from a situation where first uh, language Lakota speakers went from the majority to an absolute minority, right? At the same time, however, right, as people are looking for ways to identify themselves, right? Language is one of those one of those means by which we identify ourselves, right? And so interest in in using language to do that has gone up. Mm -hmm. Now, revitalization programs, right? Basically what you need to do revitalize that, that language. And and Lakota is one of those native languages that actually has a chance to, for, for survival. There are about 20 who have a chance to survive the next 30 years or so, right? Not more. What you need to do is you need to have immersion schools. And, and, and not just kindergarten, not just, you need to have immersion schools K through 12, right? You need to have not just schools, because if you look, for example, at the Blackfeet in Montana, um, 
I had a student who whose sister went to immersion school in Blackfeet. It's one of the it's one of the um, model immersion schools in Indian country. And you know, so she went to immersion school, like I think it was elementary and middle school at the time, and then she went to high school. And after four years of high school, well, she wasn't fluent anymore, mm. right? And so you need schools, but at the same time, you also need businesses. You need you need to be able to live your daily life in that language, basically, right? And this is this is what what doomed these languages in the first place, right? And um, if you think about the challenges that that are ahead for 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 doing this, right? Well, who is going to teach the content, right, uh, in immersion schools? For example, if they are high schools, because you need you need you need teachers who are not only content specialists, but also at the same time not are not just fluent in Lakota, for example, but who also can translate the content into Lakota, right? It's a big project. It's huge, right? It's huge. It can be done, right? I mean, look at Israel uh, with, with Hebrew, right? I mean, it, it can be done, right? But it needs a ton of resources and it needs a, a, a lot of uh, commitment and, and conviction, you know. There are schools, there are schools and reservations where where the, the tribe want, wants to introduce language programs and, and parents take their, native parents take their children out of school because, because they do not want their children to learn that that language, and 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 that comes out of this right. And here's the larger problem, right? In the United States, do we treasure learning other languages, or do we have a, a, a culture where learning other languages, especially if if your first language, knowing other languages, especially if your first language you learn at home is different from English, right, is seen as an obstacle to your to your academic, to your professional career, because mm -hmm. because the, the the idea is that it will hold you back, right? right. And unfortunately, I think we're, at this, we're more tending towards the second. Mm -hmm. right. Well, Sebastian, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about these complex uh, <laughs> issues, and I'm looking forward to your talk tonight. Sure, thank you. Sebastian Braun is the director of the American Indian Studies Program at Iowa State University. By the way, the court case with the Indian Child Welfare Act that he mentioned? An appeals court heard arguments in March, and it might make its way up to the Supreme Court eventually. We aren't going to be specifically talking about them, but because we're here in Iowa, with the Meskwaki settlement about a half hour away, it bears mentioning that the land of this city and campus used to be Meskwaki land. I just think that's important to acknowledge on the show today. Native Americans are excluded from the dominant historical narratives of this country, and working to bring them back, front and center, is critical. In most history classes, we associate the story of settler colonialism with northern settlements and westward expansion. That dominant narrative of progress and American exceptionalism, taming the land and bringing civilization to the West, that story fails to include a lot of voices, but it also largely neglects the role of the South, Gina Quezon is an assistant professor of English at Georgia State University who specializes in Southern studies. I asked her what we miss out on by not acknowledging the critical role of the South in the formation of this country and how Native peoples are a part of that story. It's important to remember that when we look at the history of colonialism in the Americas, it does begin in 
the Caribbean and the Southeast. Like that is in fact where, where first invasion and contact occurs. And when we don't look at the Southeast, one of the most important things that we miss, in addition to the importance of indigenous peoples in the story, as actors and people who are having things happen to their society, we also miss the history of Spanish colonialism and that Spain was in the Americas long before the English. And so first of all, we have to put into perspective that the story of colonialism is not just an encounter between English people and indigenous people in the Americas. Next to that is the fact that the first English settlement was in fact in present-day North Carolina on Roanoke Island and is centered around Jamestown and Virginia. So when we think about what our founding narratives are in this country, um, we really do need to think about what happens in Virginia around the establishment of the Americas, not as some uh, space for religious freedom, but as a space that people came to make money. And that money-making very quickly becomes about plantation agriculture. And so in 1619, when the first ship that's carrying enslaved peoples from Africa and the Caribbean lands in Jamestown, and when you look at across the 1600s, the solidifying of ideas of race and enslavement in Virginia, if we don't understand what's happening in the Southeast with these sort of founding narratives, it's hard for us to understand how we got to the country and the conflicts we have today. Mm -hmm. So we have to pay attention to what happens in the Southeast because it explains a lot of the later story of the Americas as a country that depends a lot on continually a capitalist economy dependent upon still, and I know this is something people see in the Midwest, agriculture. Yeah. Now, too, I think that when we think of that story of settler colonialism as part of Western expansion, indeed, uh, there is the thing of the old Southwest. And you read newspapers from the 1800s, and when they're talking about the Southwest, they're talking about Alabama and Mississippi as the frontier. Mm. <laughs> they're not really talking about across the Mississippi yet. Um, the late 1700s, early 1800s, the the space where settler colonialism is happening in, is in Alabama. It's in the section of Georgia, present-day Georgia, that is still Cherokee Nation territory. And so how settler colonialism starts to refine itself as it tries to gather land for the plantation economy can also tell us about what happens as the system moves west. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the presence of slavery in the southeast when we start to see Western expansion, will states be added to the Union as states that support enslavement or abolitionist states? That debate plays out, but we have to understand that settler colonialism proceeds across the continent. It doesn't just become invented once it is in something like present-day Iowa. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like your your area of study, in particular studying the South and, and Southern Native literature, um, is is more important because we have ignored it for so long? Southern studies has not until very recently, the past decade, particularly Southern literary studies, paid much attention to 
native concerns, mm. native land claim, native literature. There is a saying in Southern studies that gets used a lot, which is the sense of place. And the thing is, is when we just imagine that places are kind of ephemeral sensory, it allows us to ignore that there is a material land claim and land theft that matters for how that region came to be. Mm -hmm. So Southern Studies is usually very obsessed, understandably, with the Civil War. Old South, New South, that's how it just gets divided. What happens if we realize that the Indian Removal Act and Native Removal in the Southeast maybe tells us a lot more about how the region takes its shape than the Civil War? The Civil War is a lead up that emerges from what happens, how Georgia tests their right to enact removal. That is a that is a state's rights question that they enact. Like, is the federal government going to stop us from doing that? Mm -hmm. The answer is no. You look at South Carolina nullification. Was the federal government going to stop us? Like, we don't want to pay the tariffs. So when we get to the Civil War, of course, Confederate states thought it would work. The federal government had stood by while they committed genocide against Southeastern Native peoples. So why wouldn't they think this other thing's going to work? Mm -hmm. So it tells us a lot more about how we got to the Civil War to kind of back up and look at what's happening with indigenous politics as they're interacting with the states in what we think of as the Southeast. Mm -hmm. So your new book, Red States, Indigeneity, Settler Colonialism, and Southern Studies, discusses popular misconceptions about Native American identity in the U.S. South. What are those misconceptions and how are how are Native peoples portrayed in literature? Well, first, just popular culture. I think there is a large misconception that Native people are completely absent from their contemporary region. I teach a lot of fantastic students and they say, well, after the 1830s and Indian removal, we never talk about Native people again. So they just think they're gone. They're all gone. Um, and they've been gone for coming up on 200 years. Well, that's just not true, right? There are lots of Native people, both in terms of tribal groups as well as individuals of many tribes in the Southeast. So the first thing is Native people are contemporary people in this region who have concerns that we need to pay attention to and respect. The other thing is a little bit of what is sort of colloquially known as the um, Cherokee princess, grandmother. As it turns out, Cherokee people did not have that type of royalty. Um, so there were no official princesses or princes. It's never prince. It's always a princess. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the Southeast sort of imagines that they have this deep indigenous heritage. And I don't mean to question anyone's grandmother, but sometimes these are stories, maybe there's some root of truth there, but... Because there were no Cherokee princesses, no one's grandmother was a Cherokee princess. It's like if someone from Germany told you that their mother was an American princess, it would make no sense because you're like, wait, but that's not even our governmental structure. <laughs> like, that's not a thing that one could be. Mm -hmm. I have had a colleague, Ben Fry, who is the Cherokee linguist, linguist at Chapel Hill, he was telling me that he had heard that unfortunately, even that term, Cherokee princess, emerges from young women who were kidnapped in the region and essentially sold into sex trade. Mm. And there would be advertisements for 
a Cherokee princess. Wow. So when we even hear that term, in his words, it should raise some red flags. Yeah. Because even if the person doesn't know that that's what they're repeating, it may have a, a history that we don't really need to replicate as a romantic one. Yeah. So I think that you see a lot of non-Native people in the South want to attach themselves to this romantic image of Native people. And indeed, sometimes we can think that romantic images are positive ones, but they're still dehumanizing ones. And rather really think about living Southeastern Native peoples, Cherokee, Catawba, Chickasaw, Creek, Choctaw, could go on. They want to just have this romantic, vanishing Indian stereotype Mm -hmm. that is gone after removal. And so I think what I try to do is when I look at the literature, say, okay, why, for example, is something like the story of the lost colony so popular? Why does it get retold? And what ideas is it giving non-Native people about the Native people who are still right next to them? And usually that idea is that they are gone and therefore it is okay to take their land Mm. because I refuse to see them as a living human who still has a territorial right or connection. And so why do you think these these misconceptions matter nowadays for, for Native people still living in the South? I think that unpacking the misconceptions matter for contemporary Native people because they don't have to start at ground zero when they're trying to assert, for instance, you look at um, tribal nations and groups and communities in Louisiana who are fighting against the Atchafalaya Basin Pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline has had a lot of coverage, and that's important, and it should. Native peoples in Louisiana are fighting the same fight, Mm -hmm. but because we have a national sort of mythical image of what a Native person looks like, it's harder for tribal groups in Louisiana who have different histories and different stories and a different way of looking and being and speaking. A lot of them speak French, they don't fit that media image that sells on the nightly news. Mm -hmm. It makes the story a little more complicated. And so if in some way non-Native people can educate themselves about it isn't just an homogenous identity, there's regional inflection, there are 570-plus federally recognized tribes, maybe it allows them to engage with something like the activism happening in Native communities in Louisiana against a pipeline And they can get to the meat of it very quickly about how to be good allies because they've had some of that um, homogenous pan-Indianness like lifted, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have to go through that first. They can educate themselves, understand that's not the universal image, and then ask, well, how can I help this tribal community in this space that's not getting the same attention and media coverage? Mm -hmm. So what's the story of the the lost colony and... And why is it such a, a sticking point in the in the history that we teach and, and talk about? Well, I think people like the Lost Colony because it's supposedly a mystery, right? Yeah. There's a lot of pathos because it's the first English settlement in Virginia Dare. It's this English child who was born and disappears. And it happens by chance, I guess, in what becomes North Carolina. So first of all, there are a lot of people in the South who are attached to the story because they feel like it puts them back on the map Mm -hmm. in terms of early American celebration. Right. That is not why I think the story is that (laughs) important. 
I don't mean to spoil it for anyone, but here is uh, my conclusion, and I'll walk you through the events leading up to it, okay. right? There are several settlements. Um, there are several dispatches. Several people come from England or on the island. By the time the famous group that has men, women, and children gets there, there have already been about three kind of failed attempts. I believe it is Philip Amadeus and Arthur Barlow are two men who do a particularly bad job while they're there. They just have a small dispatch of English soldiers. They have dinner with one group of people. After they have, but for all accounts, like a very good dinner, they leave, they march away. I assume they're always marching. In the archive, they're always <laughs> marching. And I'm like, did you just walk? Because it kind of sounds like maybe you just walked. They march away, and then they realize that they say the Sakotans stole a silver cup from them. So they, in a rage, march back and burn down the whole village because they say they won't give back the silver cup. Uh-huh. Now, this is insane because... <laughs> In all that travel, like, you're going to lose a cup or two, right? right? Like, is this cup that important to burn a village, kill people, and burn their food stores for the winter? And they're very proud that they've done this. They write it down. Mm -hmm. It does indeed piss off Eastern Algonquian people in the region because it definitely seems like an overreaction. They, the situation for them deteriorates very, very quickly. So by the time Sir Francis Drake comes up from the Caribbean to see how they're doing, they're like, we got to get out of here. Like, it's bad. Like, we have essentially pissed off everyone because we're killing them. Yeah. Shocked that they're pissed. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Um, So Sir Francis Drake boards, allows them to come on a ship, but he doesn't have a lot of room. So he dispatches what's listed in the archive as 200 persons cargo, which means these are enslaved people from the Caribbean. Uh, we don't know what background they are, but they had been enslaved. That is why they're listed on the ledger as 200 persons cargo. They just get dropped off on Roanoke Island. All the English leave. Okay, so what are these 200 people who are from the Caribbean who've had probably significant experience with the Spanish and slight experience with the English who've been enslaved, get dropped off on the island, it's not a big island. You have to imagine that they probably talked in some way or communicated, indeed they wouldn't have spoken the same language, with the indigenous people who are like, what are those guys about? Uh-huh. Those 200 people are never heard from again. Mm-hmm. They never appear in the archive, but we know they get dropped off. Fast forward, doop, 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 doop. That's them coming across the ocean. Here come the people that will become the lost colony. They land in a space that the situation is already really messed up. There is no way the Algonquian people are going to be particularly trustworthy because not only do they have their own experiences among various groups in the region, 200 people who had been enslaved by Mm -hmm. various European powers have just been dropped off on the island a couple of years before. Indeed, maybe the Roanoke Island with the men, women, and children Maybe they try to repair this relationship. I think that we can know that they were probably not successful. And so rather than think of this as a lost colony, what we really need to think of it is it's an Algonquian win. Mm -hmm. It is an act of resistance. And indeed, it is horrible potentially that these 
other English people who maybe were only tangentially responsible for the previous violence, they show up at a bad time. Mm -hmm. And they all died. They died. Um, Maybe there are some survivors. Maybe people were adopted into other tribes. Maybe people were taken as what we essentially might think of as prisoners of war. We can't know that, but... I mean, we do know they all eventually died, right? (laughs) That much is true. It's 2018. And instead, when we call this the lost colony, what is invisible in that is this is actually like a huge win as an early resistance movement to colonization by Eastern Algonquian people. Uh It's really the win colony, not the lost colony. Okay. So you host a podcast of your own called About South, uh, which asks, among other questions, what is the South? Is it real? And what's so special about it? So in your in your podcast, have you come upon things that you can say are, are kind of uniquely Southern or maybe things that we would be surprised are Southern um, or things that have become attributed to Southern culture that maybe shouldn't be? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do I think anything – this is an interesting question – do I think anything is uniquely Southern? I think the idea of believing that something is uniquely Southern is, is uniquely <laughs> Southern. That would be my answer. Okay. Um, indeed, every region has its own mythology, its own sense of family or food. As the very smart Jenny Lightways Goff said to me once, every place is particular and no place is exceptional. Mm. And I think that's the distinction we have to hold on to. Um, Things that I'm sometimes surprised that have a history in the South that I never knew. Mm -hmm. Um, The guest, a guest in my first season, Scott Heath, who works on music, went through the history of hip hop in New York. And he's like, all these kids who started hip hop in the Bronx, they're all kids of immigrants from other Souths. And so, you know, when we look at the patterns of African-American music and culture and hip hop, yeah, okay, so it happened in New York. And that's not to take anything away from the Bronx or New York. But where do these people come from? Mm -hmm. They're from the Dominican. They're from the Deep South. Like, their families move. And something happens in that movement. But we don't need to negate how important this continuum between the Southeast United States and kind of the Caribbean with the history of a black diaspora is really is to the cultural production of our contemporary kind of American popular culture. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Gina, for taking the time to talk with me and for coming to Grinnell. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Gina Quezon is an assistant professor of English at Georgia State University. You can find links to her work on our website. Gina and I also talked about S-Town, which is a podcast from the producers of Serial and This American Life. You might have heard of it, because it's pretty popular. It's the only podcast that comes even close to the quality of all things Grinnell. I put a little snippet of our conversation as a little podcast extra, so give it a listen if you're interested. I didn't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't listened, or bore you if you aren't interested, but I highly recommend listening to S-Town, and then to my conversation with Gina. She has some hot takes on the portrayal of the South depicted in the eponymous town of Woodstock, Alabama. Shifting gears a little bit, there's been a bunch of great music coming to campus this semester, and a few weeks ago we were treated to a very special guest, 
Nora Mint Somali and her band swung by Herrick Chapel all the way from Mauritania. If you don't know where Mauritania is because you failed high school geography or because you're a stereotypical resident of the United States, it's a country on the northwest coast of Africa. Mauritania is known as the land of a thousand poets, and they have a deep musical tradition. But it's not as internationally known as some of its neighboring countries. You could be forgiven for not hearing of Mauritania on the musical scene, as it's historically been overshadowed and largely stayed within the country. But Nora Mint Somali set out to change that. Nora comes from a long line of Mauritanian musicians known as griots. They are praise singers, poets, and musicians, and they have a special status in the country. Much of the Mauritanian musical tradition is passed on through families, as there is no formal school of music in the country. Nora's father was the first person to notate Moorish music theory, and he basically wrote the book on Mauritanian music, and Nora took the baton from there. She wanted to bring Mauritanian music to places it had never been, and she's done just that. She is Mauritania's foremost musical emissary, by far the most traveled musician from her country, ever. She stopped by Tony Perman's Music in Africa class before her performance to talk a little bit about their music, and students were able to ask some questions of Nora and the band. It was fascinating to hear them talk about the structure of Mauritanian music and their vision for what they do as well as the politics of praise singers in their country. I'm no musicologist, so I'll let their producer, drummer, manager, and translator, Matthew Tanari, explain a little bit about their music. The way that Moorish uh, melody is conceptualized is like in this five-mode system, which is really fascinating because it's like a, a whole cyclical kind of concept versus like a linear tradition in the West where you start in one place and you end in another. Uh, in Moorish music, there's five different uh, modes. And within each mode, uh, there are two, there are different what they call roots or, or ways of playing. There's a, a black way and a white way. And there's a spotted way where you kind of mix the two. Um, and the music moves in this progression. Once you, in a traditional concert scenario, you would start playing in the first mode and you would move successively through the, the five modes. Once you leave a mode, you don't go back to it. Nora met her husband, Jaish, on the Mauritanian wedding circuit, where griots often play. Unlike in the United States, being a wedding singer in Mauritania is actually a big deal. And people adore the griots who perform. But Nora and Jaish wanted to do something different, so they started a band and experimented with blending traditional music with a modern electronic twist. In addition to singing, Nora plays the Ardeen, a harp-like instrument only played by female griot in Mauritania. Her husband, Jaish, plays the Tidnit, a banjo-like instrument. They take the first few frets from a traditional guitar and add them in between frets further down the neck of the guitar, creating sounds that really just don't exist in Western music. They performed in Herrick Chapel. As far as we know, her concert here in Grinnell was the very first Mauritanian music performance in Grinnell. A completely unique event, and it truly was. Here's a little taste of their music from the performance. 
was Nora Mint Somali performing at Herrick Chapel here on campus. You can find more of her music on this episode's webpage. Just a couple quick notes before we go. If you listened to the Off the Field episodes from a while ago, you may remember Lou Moore, the history professor who specializes in the history of sports, race, and gender. Well, he's got his own podcast now, Black Athlete. You can find it on SoundCloud, and there's a link on this episode page. Somewhat related to that, I want to take a second to shout out Adam Dalton from the class of 2016, who qualified for the Olympic marathon trials in 2020. Dalton is just the second openly gay male-identified athlete to qualify. Check out the rest of the story on our website. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're going to talk to John Garrison, Associate Professor of English here at Grinnell, about his new book, Shakespeare and the Afterlife. And then, we'll talk with his Dutch colleague, Jan Frans van Dekhuysen, Associate Professor of English Literature at the University of Leiden, about his new book, The Literary History of Reconciliation. I know, it sounds a little dark, and you're right. It is. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Poddington Bear, and Nora Mint Somali. Thanks to Alec Wood for his help with the Nora Mint Somali story, and Randy Jones from The Listening Room for the audio from the concert. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. <laughs>